my name is Neil Middleton and every month we create informative content for you as we talk to important, influential and inspirational people from the world of bats as well as other areas of interest. To find out more about Batability, go to batability.co.uk. Now for the interview. Let's do it. Hi everybody, welcome to another Talking Bat interview and today I am so pleased to be talking not bat but actually talking books with Nigel Masson of Pelagic Publishing. How are you doing Nigel? I'm good, good morning Neil. Good, good, good. I've been so looking forward to doing this. Uh, it was a number of months ago that I asked you about it and uh, so glad that you said yes because you are the man that uh, not many people appreciate is sitting behind Pelagic Publishing and yourself and your business has brought to us so many of the books that we refer to, not just in the world of bats, but with so many other things to do with ecology and related subjects. But I'm going to ask you a lot more about that uh, during the course of the interview. But before we go on to that, what I really want to talk about uh, to begin with was life before books. So where did it all start for you? Did you always have an interest in nature, zoology, whatever? Tell us a little bit about that, Nigel. Yeah, yeah a, bit as, a bit as a child, I always had, and I think it was mainly delivered through books, possibly more than actually um, experiencing nature. I mean, I just spent a lot of time outdoors, but I wouldn't say I was a, a great naturalist as a child. Um, but I always had a lot of books and I was always very interested in natural history books. And, and that's, I guess, partly, I, I was very keen on science at school and ended up choosing a zoology degree based on, on a, a general interest in science in, in all of the, the, the natural sciences. And I didn't really know what I, what I wanted to do at all. I, I had some thoughts about uh, a career in the army and thought that you know it, therefore I could do pretty much any degree because I wasn't I, I didn't need to have a particular a career but I did, really didn't have a clue what I wanted to do and zoology sounded great fun I was really keen to uh, move to North Wales and live near the mountains and so yeah from from South London to to, to North Wales uh, quite the train ride and um, <laughs> and that so I enjoyed my zoology degree I, I'm not sure I was a great student but um, and then like many people at the end of the degree I wasn't really sure what to do and I, I quite I quite like the look of this master's degree which was uh, imperial but it was actually taught in the natural history museum in London wow. so, okay yeah um, and then that was an amazing experience um, because we we had lectures and practicals and projects with all different departments within the museum in the collections, which are you know obviously the the sort of the the side of the museum the public doesn't get to see as much, and so we were sort of running around in all the tunnels under the museum between the department buildings and having different different. Um, lectures and getting to see different sections of the, the collection 
so that was really good fun and i enjoyed i really enjoyed that for a year and then at the end of a master's degree you think well what do we do now and um applied for and and was accepted on a phd program in southampton uh working on the ecology of atlantic salmon right i knew nothing okay. about uh, nothing about atlantic salmon particularly at all um but we were looking at population structure so it was a project in partnership with the environment agency okay. on the river eden in cumbria so we had a, a big data set um off the back of surveying that the environment agency were doing and i basically spent a little bit of time very enjoyable time doing field work with the environment agency and squeezing in a few hill walking trips in the lakes each time and then a lot of time in the lab uh doing the analysis uh, molecular analysis and doing stats so that was four that was four years of your life doing that yeah um, it's supposed to be three but you know okay. these things sometimes take a bit longer than planned um and i enjoyed it and i enjoyed i enjoyed that extended stint at university but i i, I kind of felt that i didn't I, I wouldn't fit in in academia that that wasn't that wasn't really a, a viable career option yeah because by, by that time uh, you've been at university from 1996 through to 2004 um so that's kind of eight years of your life yeah and it's uh wow did you get any published papers out of any of that or were you working or was it no no i should i should have done i i I, 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 I struggle with my PhD. I, I found it, it very difficult. I felt, and I think it's quite common PhD experience, feel quite isolated and lost half the time. Uh, uh, I had a great time, you know, I, I enjoyed my, my time in Southampton and I had great friends and, and we had a great lab and a very active research group. But I, I think I didn't have that drive to stay in academia and I didn't, I didn't ever finish writing up my papers um okay, okay i was i think i was already i was already mentally ready to move on although i didn't know what to i had no idea what i wanted to do i was still somewhat without a plan yeah so what did you move on to then i mean what 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 i mean were you doing were you doing part-time jobs during this point in time throughout, uh, throughout my masters and phd i worked part-time um i spent years working in hotels uh, in and around um South London, where I grew up, that was from from teenager through to the end of my masters. Okay. Southampton, I worked um, for for a few years on night shift at the weekends in Sainsbury's. Okay. Mainly stacking, mainly stacking loo rolls, which is a great aisle. Um, uh, and was 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 a really it fit in well with everything, um, work wise. And I also, for nearly two years, worked weekends in Cotswold Outdoor, selling outdoors gear, which was great fun. And, and I've always enjoyed hill walking and camping and trekking and things. So okay. um, that was a great, a very enjoyable job, uh, you know, helping people choose walking boots and tents and all that sort of thing. So you walk out of University of Southampton, you're a, you're a doctor. Yeah. OK. Uh, you've got eight years of university experience behind you, academic experience behind you, or oh, what happens next? Where, where does the story go? Yeah, so I wasn't ever sort of uh, homeless between Southampton and what came next. So I, towards the end of my PhD, I applied for a postdoc, which is what, what you're supposed to do. And, you know, that, that's, that's your first 
proper paid job in in academia and the route to you know a lectureship and um a permanent job but um and i had i i i into well of that and i i had a an offer and on a whim i had applied for a job as a marketing coordinator i think it was called at nhbs that that what was then the the mail order bookshop and i bought books from nhbs in the past and had received their what was then a newspaper style catalog and very randomly looking at that towards the end of my phd saw a job advertised in there If you're enjoying listening to our podcasts, perhaps you would also be interested in joining Batability Club. To find out more about Club, which includes hundreds of hours of accessible training resources available to you in your own time and at your pace, go to batability.co.uk. Thank you. And they were seeking what I thought was an unusual combination of skills, interest in taxonomy, natural history, and uh, and marketing, uh, and um, and books and the book trade generally. Yeah. And I sort of had at the back of my mind this idea that maybe I should be involved in publishing in some way because I really like books. And um, so I applied for this job and and got it. And they very generously agreed to wait for me to finish my PhD before I started. Okay. So I finished and submitted my PhD on Friday afternoon and Monday morning, the, the, the next week I'd moved to Devon and started at NHBS. So, wow. so I didn't really have a lot of time sort of, you know, hanging around wondering what to do. I, I okay. had found myself at the next thing. Yeah. And I, I thought that was going to be something very temporary um, while I paid off my credit card bills and, and worked out what to do. But, you know, I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed learning about the book trade and and more broadly learning about businesses and how businesses operate and um i you know i i work very closely with the the owner of nhbs ben and mercer and learned a lot from him about how how companies run and uh and any was in the period i was there which turned out to be nearly 10 years sort of changed from being a, a mail order bookshop to being uh, a supplier of of, all, of everything Oh, yeah, that's that's the thing because yeah, yeah, because like you, I mean, I remember uh, younger years when I would get that that magazine, that paper magazine that you talked yeah. about through the post, and you had no idea back then um, what was for sale, what was coming out. I mean, the internet back then isn't like what what it is now, and uh, and it was just. Uh, and it was so exciting to get that through the through the letterbox because it was telling you stuff that you had no way of knowing all about it. But as you said back then, it was just natural history bookshop. Mm. And then I think were you there for an NHBS bought over was that Alana Ecology? Yeah, yeah I, I I personally ended up dismantling Alana's shelving with the help of Andrew McLeish, its, its owner. Okay. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, uh, and, we, and we that did. must have been when NHBS suddenly became a very different business. Is that a fear? Is that a fear? Uh, yeah, I think so. We'd started dabbling with selling some equipment um, before before buying Alana, um, uh, especially batch detectors and things like that. Um, and you know, there was this there was this question: you know, could could we become 
the, the one-stop shop sort of place for, for, for ecologists, conservationists, university academics doing work in ecology and conservation. And, um, and, and Alana was certainly a, a step on in that direction. And, um, you know, just after I, I left NHBS, uh, a, a fairly long-term goal had been to start manufacturing and NHBS are now manufacturing their own, some of their own equipment, pond nets and, and sampling and survey things as well. So, you know, they've really succeeded in, in, in finding and making available a huge range of equipment, but also still books. It's still the place to go yeah. or yeah. natural history books. And obviously a, a great customer of Pelagic's books. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it was very enjoyable being there and being on the receiving end of, of everything new published in natural history. Um, you know, there's this constant stream of information coming in about books and being added to catalogs and lists and databases and, and then books coming into stock and, so, you know, everything from around the world that is yeah, yeah. natural history related ends up being sold through NHBS, which is, you know, unique. No one else has, has attempted to do such a thing. Um, it's, it's much more in depth in terms of its subject than any other, any other, any other bookshop. Yeah. And I so think only one with a serious interest has probably ended up buying books from them at some point. Yeah. So you started off life at NHBS. What was your job title when you walked in in 2004? I think it was job title. Catalogue and Promotions Editor, I think. And when you left in 2014, uh, you, were, yeah. you were managing director. Yeah? Yeah. You ended up managing director of that business. I mean, that is, well, I've got to say that's pretty impressive. You must have been feeling, you would have worked very hard. There would have been uh, lots of stresses and excitement and lots of other adjectives at opposite ends of spectrums, I would imagine. Um, but you must have been, you must feel quite proud of what you achieved over that period to to get to where you got to. Yeah. Yeah, I enjoyed it immensely. I think almost from the start of getting there uh, in 2004, I was sort of poking my nose into processes and operations of the business and was always I think quite quickly more interested in 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 the operations of the business and how it functioned and, and the marketing more broadly than than what was perhaps specifically my job but that was very much encouraged by by the owner and um, yeah that just led to me taking on more and more things and you know it was just great fun the NHS has a fantastic customer base um, you know, many, many loyal customers over many years in all, all areas of natural history and libraries. And it was just great interacting with people, going to conferences. Yeah and, yeah, yeah. and I've just always liked tinkering as well with, you know, the, the most, you know, there's just so much, it's similar with publishing, but there are, you know, many businesses, there's just so many steps um, to, to getting, to getting the book in the post to a customer and, 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 and changing how we, how we processed and dealt with communication and um, the rise of email marketing and things like that and competing with Amazon. Amazon obviously turned yeah. up and, yeah. Uh, yeah. and changed people's expectations of what, of what ordering by mail order as it was, you know, previously called and is now called e-commerce, but they changed people's expectations of, of, um, of what to expect, you know, prior to Amazon, people were pretty happy to get their, things in the post within a, you know, within a week or so, perhaps. But yeah, 
yeah amazon rapidly made it the norm that you get your things sort of the next day or the day after yeah, yeah. and that's very hard for everybody else to keep up with yeah um, so yeah, it was all great fun yeah and then round about 2004 okay uh, and you, you give you give give me the timeline because i wasn't there obviously but I seem to remember the first time I spoke to you about a project I was working on, or you spoke to me about a project I was working on. You were still at NHBS, but at that point, Pelagic had already started. Uh, there was a bit of a crossover, I think. Is that, is that fair? So, yeah. so where, where did Pelagic come from? It, it's kind of obvious talking to you that you got a you had the interest in books and you did all of this uh, business-related stuff at NHBS, et cetera, et cetera. But there must have been a point when you were having a cup of tea or a biscuit or you woke up one morning and you decided, I'm going to do this myself or I'm going to try and do something different myself. Yeah. Well, tell us the story about that. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I started Pelagic, I founded the company in 2010. So it, it so for five years I was still five more years I was still at NHBS and Pelagic was a, a hobby, um, and uh, you know I was always interested in books and I think I was always an increasing interest in, in in how to make businesses run and operate. I'd also been teaching myself a bit of typesetting and design work, and I just I think I kept sort of I I had also thought about getting jobs in publishing and I'd been looking into that a bit but I just felt an urge to try and publish some books myself and I can't really pin down why I mean I did suggest books to editors of other publishers and I was constantly trying to sort of have book conversations but I didn't I didn't really find you know the reception particularly particularly great I think people were like well you know thanks but and so I was like well I can think of some books that should should exist it'd be great if they did exist and so just decided just to try try publishing some and and see what happened. Um, and, you know, once you, you know, put yourself out there and, and say this, you know, we're doing this thing, then other opportunities happen and people come along and say, well, I've, I've also got this book that, you know, perhaps you'd like to look at. And, um, and I, I did know people in, in the in the industry from NHBS and I, I had a good fairly good understanding of the book and publishing landscape. Um, but I'd never worked at a publishing company. And sometimes I felt like I was sort of reinventing the wheel. And there are pros and cons to that. Uh, and I just yeah. also had a sense, and, and you may well, you know, have the same, same, same feeling that I wanted to, 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 to ultimately sort of build something of my own, um, you know, that I, that I could, um, you know, shape and develop as I, as I saw fit over time. So um, yeah, in 2015, you know, it was Pelagic had grown to the size where it had a it had a full time uh, member of staff working for it remotely and and me doing work in evenings and weekends. But it was just not sustainable. And so so yeah, actually, yeah. you can't be the managing director of NHBS and then try and do this as well. I mean, there's. That, that, that must, that, that, there's obviously a point where, the, I mean, this is kind of what happened to me a bit with bats. Okay, I kind of say it's, I kind of say it was a hobby that went wrong. <laughs> you know, no, that's probably not the. It's probably a hobby that went really right, 
but yeah. it but it went but it went wrong because at the at the first steps into the hobby it wasn't envisaged that you would end up doing this full time i would imagine i mean did you did you start off and be one at pelagic with your first book or your first couple of books thinking 10 years from now pelagic love done i don't know you must have done how many books have you done a hundred more than a hundred over a hundred now yeah over a hundred books and we've, but... we've taken on some some lists from other publishers who, who you know whose books were sort of left without without a home um yeah. i think i thought it was a route into perhaps a publishing career at a bigger publisher um yeah. uh in retrospect it's not a very good route into a publishing <laughs> career. um uh, I mean, there is a tried and tested route into publishing, which is uh, a degree and then working in a bookshop if you want to go into yeah. mainstream publishing and then applying for, for publishing jobs, many of which are in, in London or the, the big university cities. But um, yeah, I think it was only really in 2015 that I, I had to start thinking about it much more as a, a long-term career and, and that, you know, how you know we, we've all got you know financial responsibilities and yeah. you know, how do I uh, what does that mean for Pelagic and what it, what it mainly meant is publishing a larger number of books it meant uh, investing more in our in our marketing and distribution and it's partnerships with distributors and people who warehouse and, and sell our books um, and, and that goes on you know you, a, a business is never stable in the sense of its operations you're always looking at, at at new things to do and you're always looking at partnerships and um new processes new websites just the other week i replumbed the system that takes orders from our website and sends them to our distributor okay it wasn't yeah. working as well as i would like it to work and you know that was you know just the, the kind of jobs that crop up in a small in a small company it's not all about um you know books and design and and that sort of thing it's it's it can be obviously quite mundane as in any business there's lots of administration to do so yeah yeah no, absolutely absolutely yeah so over 100 books um and wow you know it's pretty impressive pretty impressive and when we kind of look at uh you know here is a selection of some of those books and these pretty much are the are the bat related ones uh, there's probably one or two that i've missed and i know there's at least one maybe a uh, another one that's not one here that will be coming soon but and, and i know that you're not a bat person okay so you're uh, a <laughs> i remember when i asked you to do this interview i think your response was but but i'm not i'm not a bat person you know? and uh, and I said, yeah, okay, that's a fair point. But but without you, it's quite possible that those of us who are bat people uh, wouldn't have had access to a lot of what we're seeing here. And it's pretty impressive. And this is just your bat-related stuff. This is without, there wasn't space to put in all 100 plus of everything you'd done. Um, how does this make you feel? I mean, you know, you must have started off. I can't remember which one of these would have been the first one for you. The Bat Workers Manual, maybe? 
What's that? British, the British Bat Calls. The Bat Workers Manual, we we reprinted. So it's you the original guidance okay. by the JNCC. We reprinted it. Uh, so, so John Ross's British Bat Calls, that was your first one. Yeah. Um, no, I can't imagine when you started off doing this one. Did, did you? This was because I'd got to know, this is because I'd got to know Andrew McLeish for Alana Ecology, and he was the publisher of the previous edition. That's right. Yeah, that's right. And that edition had been long delayed. And so Andrew introduced me to John and John said, look, I've been waiting for this to happen for years. I'd just love to see it published. Do you want to, you know, do that? And I was like, yep, okay. Okay. So we then got that book out and yeah i guess it led to many of the other bat books including you know conversations with yourself and others and i think not by design that we you know it was never a plan to to end up publishing a lot of bat books but these things sort of pick up a a momentum so you know people then come and say well i i've you know i've got an idea for a bat book as well um and you know we've got quite a few people from 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 all around the world now uh working on different books um because yeah they, they've got an idea for a bat book and we seem we seem to have a, a good list of bat books and you know yeah I, it's great seeing them all because i normally see them sort of spying out on the shelves it's only really at conferences of which there haven't been any for a while yeah we yeah. get to see all the books um face out and you know every one of those is an incredible amount of work on the part of our authors who who have the idea for a book and spend years usually um toiling away you know assembling data writing editing uh their books i mean their their passion projects so i mean that's the most fun part of the job is talking to authors about ideas for books and finding out about about the work authors are doing and helping them shape that that idea into a into a book project um yeah but i think they look, they look looks nice on the screen there there's there's one um slightly late running book the the barber cell book which we hope to see thank you yeah the others are all yeah yeah two yeah. of those will be out very soon yeah, no, it's, no, it's, no it's, it's, it's great stuff. It really is great. So do you, I mean, I can't, you must get a lot more people giving you ideas that you can say yes to. I mean, now and again, somebody must approach you with an idea and you go, actually, no, that one's not for us or that's not something that's going to work or whatever. Um, does that happen? You know, is it, you know, is that, is that uncomfortable for you to say that to someone or, you know, talk us through that process a bit. We're not, you know, obviously we're not a huge publisher, big publishers. There are lots of layers and um, committees and different groups who have to sign off on things and, and, and I guess minimum sales thresholds to be met. I tend to take a, I tend to take a view that if I like the, idea of the book and I like the idea of working with the authors that will try and find a way to publish it and and that might mean that it, it a book takes a while to to break even we've published some some books which have been you know slow to break even um but nonetheless 
incredibly proud of. So I don't, um, I don't, you know, we get queries all the time from people with ideas for books. And some of those are very easy just to say those, those aren't for us because they are not really on topic. Um, some of them are often, you know, just very strange projects. That I, I wonder how many thousands of publishers they've already emailed. Uh, anything that is a serious idea, but I don't think fits us, I try and say why and give some detailed feedback. And if I can, suggestions of where where people might go um, for publishing. And if it's something that I like the look of, then we, you know, we try and yeah work with the author to, to develop the idea into a into a book. Um, you know, sometimes some books, most of the books on the screen, all of the books on the screen, they have a clear sort of rationale. They exist to solve a problem, uh, to, to answer a question scientifically or for, for consultants. Um, other types of books that are more of the sort of what we'd call the book trade would call the trade end of the mainstream end of publishing. Those are books that often need more of a kind of compelling um you know title design and content and also author to to try and convince people to buy them because they don't need to exist they're sort of books that people might want to have um rather than need to have so those are much harder often to make decisions about and we get pitched quite a few books that um quite regularly where people have perhaps done some sort of traveling or expedition um you know, to see X number of birds in a certain place in a certain time. And, you know, that's been a, 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 a sort of a genre in natural history, in ornithological publishing. Yeah. But it's, it's hard sometimes to find that a unique enough angle that makes it um, into a book that we can envisage people buying. So, um, but I try and just answer people quickly. I think, you know, the books are, books are an emotional project for people and there's a lot tied up in it and try and give people a quick answer and, and some and some useful feedback and yeah when, when we when we like something try and yeah try and work with the author to make that happen you've got a lot of guidance on your website about uh, how to approach you and maybe you've got things like you know this is what you would expect an initial approach to look like you maybe have an example of a layout chapter title a writing style it's all pretty clear on your website as to what someone needs to do but i think the thing that probably surprises some people that haven't done this before is i think i think first time book writers uh, probably feel that they've got to have the book almost finished before they approach a publisher now that's not necessarily the case is that is that correct um it's yeah it's, no i mean in, in the projects come in all, all all states from 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 just an idea um through to you know finished in some cases people have even designed and laid out the book themselves um and and then have sort of thought hang on a minute what am I going to do with it now? So um, it, it it doesn't really matter. Uh, it doesn't really matter at what stage people have their their manuscript and their their idea developed. Um, we're happy to consider you know books at any stage. Um, I think what we look for and try and encourage, and we have a proposal form that is, 
that we encourage people to fill out when they're when they're sort of pitching a book idea. We encourage people to think really carefully about the reader and what the reader is, who the reader is, and what their sort of journey is through the book. What do you expect your reader to know at the beginning? What level are you writing at? What do you expect your reader to have gained from the book? And then that kind of you know, promise that you're making to the reader to, to, to take them on that journey, is that, is that delivered in the, in the book itself, in its structure, in its title? Is it, is it priced for that audience? Is it the right format for that audience? So it's just having a really clear idea of, of who your reader is. Um, I think that's absolutely critical. And then the, the, the kind of worst thing that can happen to a book is that it, it, it's, it's aimed too broadly and it's not clear who it's for. And then, and then people can perhaps part, you know, they don't, they don't notice a book because it's not so clearly aimed at them. So we kind of like books to be really focused in on a, on a particular audience. Um, I think that really helps, helps make sure everyone gets to hear about the book. Yeah. 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 No, I, I can totally relate to that. And, uh, and we're not going to, we're deliberately not going to talk any detail about anything that I've been involved with, but other than I know that you and I, we've, we've had some uh, interesting uh, conversations about stuff in the past and, and I can totally relate to what you've just been saying there. Um, totally relate so to much of the work, yeah. so much of the work on a book is sort of, is unseen. I think both the work the publisher does is sometimes unseen and the work the author does, people think of the writing and, and that's a challenge, of course. Um, and it's a challenge to do really well. And it's a challenge to edit your own work and then work with editors at a publisher. But, you know, as you know, there's also a big administration challenge, making yeah. sure you've got all of your figures made to, to a good enough standard to print well in the book and consistency and dealing with permissions where you've used other people's figures and, and just keeping track of everything as a, as a book project yeah. progresses over, over years. Yeah. There's, there's a huge amount of work that, that authors authors take I on. The thing, I think the thing that surprised me first time around, and I think it's good to talk about this, um, because this would be something that most first time uh, writers wouldn't necessarily appreciate. Uh, as the author, you think you've finished the book, yeah, okay? So you finish the book, you've got uh, people you know to proofread the book, and you send it to you guys, and you think it's finished at that point, yeah? yeah. And it doesn't come as a shock to me now, but I remember with the Social Calls book where myself, Keith and Andy, we thought, that's it, it's finished. We don't have to worry about it anymore, yeah? And no, uh, everyone, that's not what happens at all. Actually, uh, what happens is, no, you go right back to the beginning again. And, and it's almost like you're going through the whole process again as part of uh, your copy editing and proofreading and stuff that happens at your end in order to get the thing ready. And I think this is why some people don't necessarily understand that when a publisher such as yourself announces a book, they don't necessarily understand, well, why is it taking so long to actually physically get the book? Yeah. And I think a lot of them might think, well, surely all the publisher has to do is just send that away to the printer. <laughs> do you want to talk a little bit more about that in-between process? What, yeah. Why it takes so long? Yeah. Well, some, sometimes we sometimes we announce a book. Um, so we announce books broadly based on when we've agreed with the author. 
that they'll deliver the manuscript uh, and all the figures to us. And life often gets in the way and people change jobs and, and, and move and family life. Uh, and so, you know, the, it's probably not a secret that book deadlines are often, often significantly delayed. Um, so then the book's sort of been out there in the public perhaps if if we if we thought that that the the deadline was fairly firm but then gets delayed so the book's sort of out there and it has a you know it has a cover and a face and people are expecting it um and then and then perhaps it, it takes it takes longer than the author planned to to finish writing it and then sometimes it takes longer to do the production side um than had originally been planned there might be issues with figures there might be more editing than we thought um, there are so there are just thousands of things to check and fiddle around with, and so we've sent three books off to to print this week, and e even at the last minute, there were endless just checks and edits to to a couple of the the books covers just to give them a, a final polish and fiddling around with the alignment on the text and. Um, you know, eventually you have to say that's it that, that's it it's done it's got to go but um you know we we have copy editors who have natural history uh backgrounds our production editor who manages the production phase also a naturalist so everyone's just committed to getting everything right and you know there's no such thing as perfection in book production but you know, we we try and make sure that we're as close to it as can practically be obtained. And you know, never-ending checks on taxonomy and cross-referencing and figures and sources and referencing, it all, it all, it all takes a while. And sometimes it takes longer than planned. Uh, sometimes we've been over-optimistic in announcing books, and you know, we try and we try and time everything to make as much sense to customers as possible but it's not always possible to get that right but yeah and covid and things like that have had uh, significant impacts uh, last year though less so this year but for publishing at least so. yeah that's no, fascinating stuff fascinating stuff right i want to talk uh, talk about some other things because uh, yourself uh, you're also involved in the university of exeter press just tell us very briefly how that came about and why is that different to Plagic? Is it purely just a branding thing now? Do you own it? Do you run it? Talk, talk so about it's, a, it's a totally separate entity to, to Pelagic. Um, it's a small university press. It's, um, uh, you know, in, in the university press world, you've got the, the very big presses like Oxford and Cambridge, and then some, some other large presses, Edinburgh, Manchester, Liverpool and then there's quite a few smaller presses and Exeter certainly one of the smaller ones. Um, its main specialisms are in film and performance studies, uh, Southwest studies, which is a, you know, anything to do with Devon and Cornwall and, and the and the area in the Southwest, quite a few books on mining inevitably, um, but growing lists in other subjects like linguistics. So, so I have two publishing hats, one is Pelagic and the other hat is running the University of Exeter Press. But it's a, it's a, it's a very small press. Um, and so, yeah, it's another side project that happened as a, as a, a totally random interaction at a Christmas drinks gathering of publishers in, 
in the southwest as these things tend to uh, uh until that point i didn't even know there was a university of exeter press um so uh yeah took took that on uh as 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 manager and publisher about four years ago now so that's another another hat which um so i'm constantly switching between between subjects um as well and you know the the natural history subject was terrain i knew really well and was very familiar with and the humanities although i read a lot of history um and books in the humanities i was not familiar with uh, so i've had to learn to learn a lot about that sort of different academic landscape and the, the humanities book publishing is different somewhat to science book publishing um books and short monographs in particular play a very different role for academics than they do in in the sciences so it's been it's been great fun and it's a whole different set of books to feed what is obviously something of a book obsession um and yeah i enjoy that and looking at that website um reminds me that we are in the middle of redeveloping a new site for the university of extra press and it's um it's long overdue yeah, it's yeah. rather rather elderly looking website so yeah, yeah. it's traditional traditional yeah traditional, yes traditional yeah that will soon be getting a facelift another project that's delayed unfortunately yeah. But um, these, yeah. things, these things always take longer than you think. So. Yeah, well, I've got to ask you a really obvious question. I don't know why I haven't asked you this already. Have you ever thought of writing a book yourself? And yeah, why I, haven't you? Have you written a book? Maybe I've just no. missed it. Maybe it's under the radar. Um, what's your thoughts on that? No, I don't feel I do have a particular drive to write a book. Um, okay. People often think that, or sometimes, sometimes at conferences when I'm standing at the Plagic stand and have all these books out, People say, "How have you found the time to write all these books yourself?" And I'm, like, <laughs> you know, I'm not the author. Um, no, I'm just the publisher. Um, but no, one of the authors is over there. Um, yeah, no, I, um, I don't. I did. I did consider. I did write a lot of notes towards what I thought might be an extended essay or a short book about um, about my maternal grandfather, who was. Um, led a, a, an unremarkable life ultimately but with some remarkable moments and experiences and and he was from a a, a, a very um poor family in the Welsh valleys and ran away at 14 to London to find his older brother and to to to, to live in London uh he he didn't have an address for his brother he thought it would be he would just find him because he didn't appreciate how how much bigger london would be than than the village that he grew up in so he was packed off back home uh, to wales by the police and then ran away again with the address this time and um ended up fighting in in the second world war for, for much of the war in uh, in north africa and then in italy and at monte cassino and then came home and was a sheet metal worker for the rest of his life and and was sort of fairly quiet and we you know we saw a lot of him as, as children my brother and I but he'd had some remarkable experiences that he never really talked about but in in 2005 the, the National Lottery offered a, a grant you could apply to for uh, to fund veterans going back to visit places they'd, 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 they'd fought out in the war or served in in the war and and so we 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 got this grant towards a, a trip to Italy. So 
myself and my grandfather in his mid 80s then did this sort of little trip to to Rome and Florence and, and and Casino and on that trip he was you know he opened up a lot about his experiences and I I just felt that somehow that should be documented and um and the, but my notes never saw the light of day and and he's he's gone now but yeah I, I that I thought I just felt that a book a short book and maybe I'll do it one day would have been a sort of testament to hit to him and his experiences yeah. all of which he was very sort of reluctant to talk about um and um yeah and we had a great great trip but other than that I have no no pressing <laughs> pressing desire okay. to write a book um okay yeah, yeah. That sounds fascinating, fascinating stuff. And you're also involved with the World Land Trust. Now, I've got to confess, I don't know too much about the World Land Trust. You're a council member, I think, is that correct? Do you want to tell us just a little bit about, about who these people are, what, what they do? Uh, yeah. yeah, so the World Land Trust is a fantastic charity, and um, they're their their mission is is effectively fundraising for land purchase um for conservation and the the land is 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 ultimately purchased by and held by partners in in the in the country where the where the where the land is is protected is going to be protected so it's it's um you know it's really a kind of fundraising model and the partners ultimately then purchase and manage the land and it, it funds both purchase and and ongoing, you know, costs like rangers and um, and conservation work. So it, it is about the protection of of of, of habitats uh, for conservation. So a fantastic charity, and um, well worth uh, going and having a look at their website. Sign up to their newsletter. Find out more about what they do, and they have regular campaigns. Um, and you know, there's 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 protected areas that they, they've been involved with saving all over lots in in South America but increasingly in other parts of the world as well so well worth a look yeah well I tell you what we're going to do at Batability Nigel okay uh, later on today or tomorrow uh, I'm going to go onto that website and we're going to make a 100 pound donation to the World Land Trust how does that sound is that okay that sounds great I think they'll yeah. be somewhere we'll be responsible for a square meter of land or somewhere like T Tanzania or whatever. <laughs> They're also involved in um, you know, offsetting carbon and that's that's something that uh, there's a growing interest in which is you know commercial entities looking to offset their their, their carbon uh, through through protecting habitats and forests so yeah have a look. Yeah and I'll stick a link to uh, what we do with these uh, interviews, uh, Nigel, is we, we put links underneath the video for people that are in club watching the video. And we'll put a link to this as well as to the Pelagix website, obviously, underneath this video. So if anybody else out there and any of the businesses that are members, for example, uh, we'll make it easy for them to donate as well. If you so choose, there is no pressure, anybody watching. Uh, but no, no, that's really, that's really good. And as I say, up until a couple of days ago, uh, I hadn't come across this. So I was, I just came across it because I was doing my research on yourself and I thought, wow, that looks interesting. So what's next? What about the future? What's, what's the, you know, where does this hobby that's gone right? <laughs> 
We'll pay to see yourself in 10 years' time. <laughs> <What's>... <laughs> uh, well, probably doing the school run. Uh, I've got small children and, um, you know, I think every, everyone's probably uh, have, had this experience the last year of, of being at home more and um, thinking about work-life balance and their plans and you know for us this coincides with having small children so I don't know I don't have a grand plan I want to keep publishing great books um I want the business to function and be as efficient as possible uh, I've got a, a really you know great team we were remote working before it was it was necessary to remote work I think I can't envision just going back to being office-based I mean I have a, a home office but I can't envisage going back to having a, an office. Uh, my colleagues are, are spread about um, uh, in this country and, and overseas. So I, I think we're just going to keep publishing great books and I think try and... Um, I always want to be in a position where we can, we can publish anything I think is, is useful and interesting. Um, so I don't like to try and make decisions based on spreadsheets I like to go with my instincts for whether a book is 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 going to be a good project to work on and and that means you know we have to have we have to have a broad range of books um so just keep publishing keep publishing books and and keep doing a school run and looking after the kids in the holidays and um you know just keep getting on with life and enjoying it we live in in rural mid-devon we spend a lot of time outdoors kids very much we've been very lucky with lockdown because we've we've got space outdoors so um try and not let books completely completely take over my time uh yeah this picture uh, i lifted this off of your linkedin profile uh, if i recall correctly this is you were telling me earlier this was a picture from Nepal, I think you were saying, and I know you've travelled quite a lot. Uh, you've done, you know, you've been various places. Uh, have you got any yearnings to get there travelling again in the future once you're allowed? What's your next big trip? Anything planned? Anything thought of? Uh, no. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I mean, look, I, yeah, I miss I miss going abroad. Um, I mean, a combination of um conference travel for conferences but also just travel prior prior to having children which obviously changes somewhat um yeah availability for, for just disappearing off um this was a picture from yeah from nepal that's i think um Dalagiri, a mountain range in the background my wife and i were walking around the annapurna circuit in 2015 literally just before the the big earthquake in 2015 that happened the, the day after we or hours after wow. we left wow okay. um so um i would love to go and do more trekking holidays uh i'd like to go diving but um you know many of these hobbies are on hold for the for the foreseeable future until our children are a bit older i think probably yeah yeah okay okay no good stuff good stuff well um I think that's us almost at the end. Is there, is there anything that uh, 
I should be asking you about that I haven't asked you about or uh, how, how has it been? Has it been, uh, has this been reasonably enjoyable for you? <laughs> yeah, it has. And, you know, it forced me to, um, to, 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 you know, to think about, about you know, where we are and, 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 you know, time flies. Uh, it's just over 10 years since I started being a publisher and, um, you know, I don't, I never had a clear plan for uh, what I wanted to do. Um, I, I just sort of ended up in, in books because I've always really enjoyed books. And I still, still really enjoy books uh, as a, as a reader and as a publisher. So yeah, it's been fun thinking about it. So thank, thanks for the opportunity. And I can see there's a plate of biscuits, yeah. um, <laughs> which I confess, I think I ate most of. Most of the biscuits that, that that would be me as well. And uh, I mean that that's uh, you know a cup of tea and a plate of biscuits. So my my biscuits would have chocolate on them probably. But uh, but yeah, where was that picture taken? Do you remember? Was that's, that also, in... that's also an important fact. I think it's the day after the the, the previous picture. The um, right. okay. yeah. the guide our, our guide who we walked with for for three weeks was very good at um, rustling up a packet of biscuits and <laughs> regular cups of tea. Um, okay. Never-ending cups of tea. Brilliant, brilliant stuff. Right, well, I think we'll take things to a close there. I hope you've enjoyed the Talking Books interview with Nigel from Pelagic Publishing. Uh, Nigel, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Um, no, no, it's, it's, been, it's been fascinating. I mean, I've known you for some time. We've known each other for some time, but I've, I've learned stuff about you. Over the last 24 hours that I would never have known had we not done this and uh, I'm personally appreciative of that and a lot of people uh, out there are going to you know now uh, understand your background and a lot more about you for doing this and I think that's immensely important that in our sector that uh, the people get to know the people you know that they're maybe coming across or seeing on websites or behind businesses, et cetera, et cetera. So thank you so, so much uh, for your time today. So just say, say goodbye to everybody, Nigel, and then I'll just close things off. I hope, hope to see you at a conference at some point soon. We hope you enjoyed this Talking Bat interview, which is an edited audio-only version of the original videoed session. The full version, including video, is available via Batability Club, our online training platform. To find out more about Club, go to batability.co.uk. Till next time, thank you.